shortly before 2 a.m., Saturday, February 2, 1980, inmates at the penitentiary of New Mexico near Santa Fe overpowered four correctional officers doing a routine inspection in a medium-security dormitory. The inmates rushed through the open dormitory door and within minutes captured four more officers. Using keys taken from the officers, inmates freed fellow prisoners in the southwest wing, then moved through an open grill gate to the administration area of the institution. Smashing their way into the main control center, with the seizure of the control center, the inmates gained access to every part of the main penitentiary building, where 1,157 male inmates were residing under the custody and care of 25 correctional employees. In the 36 hours that followed, 12 officers were held hostage, some of them beaten, stabbed, and sodomized. 33 inmates died at the hands of fellow prisoners, some of the victims tortured and their bodies mutilated. At least 90 other inmates were seriously injured in the riot, suffering from drug overdoses or from beatings, stabbings, and rapes inflicted by other convicts. The majority of inmates had escaped to the outside of the walls by the time the riot was over. Prison officials communicated with inmates throughout the weekend in an effort to negotiate the release of the hostage officers and the surrender of the other inmates. By 1.30, Sunday, February 3, 1980, the violence had spent itself. Police and National Guardmen retook the penitentiary without resistance. Hello, and welcome to Episode 17 of Everything But the Kitchen Sink Podcast. This is Part 1 of a multi-part series of the New Mexico Penitentiary Riot of 1980. The forthcoming podcast episodes will look at what occurred just prior to, during, and in the aftermath of the February 2nd and 3rd, 1980 riot at the New Mexico State Penitentiary. Now, we begin with Part 1. An understanding of the events at the penitentiary of New Mexico on February 2nd and 3rd requires a basic familiarity with the institution. The penitentiary is approximately 10 miles south of Santa Fe, New Mexico, on State Road 14, and the prison was designed for 1,058 inmates, but the population at the time of the riot was 1,157. Yet, just a year previously, the federal courts investigated the institution and claimed that the prison was actually designed for just 900 inmates. Either way, the prison was overcrowded. Added to that was the fact that construction was occurring at the penitentiary and inmates, including dangerous ones, were taken out of secured wings and crammed into overcrowded dormitories in population. There were four warnings to the riot. A month prior, a prison psychologist told the superintendent that inmates were planning to take hostages and that ammunition and homemade firearms were to be used in the takeover. In response, a shakedown of the dormitory occurred and nothing was found. On January 23rd, a report noted that inmates were making knives and distributing to other cell blocks for the takeover, yet nothing was done. In the days leading up to the riot, there was an increase in the number of requests by prisoners for transferring out of dormitory E2. The day before the riot, 
an inmate dropped out of the college program and later told a staff member that he dropped out because he thought a hostage-taking would occur in the school area. A woman employee was reportedly told by an inmate the week of the riot that, quote, when I come and tell you not to come to work the next day, don't come to work. During the week preceding the riot, correctional officers were briefed to remain on alert and keep on your toes for any possible incidents. They planned on moving those suspected of planning a takeover to segregation, yet only three of those inmates were transferred out. On Friday, February 1, 1980, 25 correctional employees reported for duty on the morning shift at the penitentiary of New Mexico. They were charged with the custody, care, and control of 1,157 inmates. The procedures for securing dormitories, including Dormitory E2, was well established. But on February 2, 1980, the routine occurred under circumstances which made it far from usual. The lights in the dormitory and the day room were turned off when the day room was closed. There were a few small blue nightlights in the ceiling, but they were out of order. The only illumination was supplied by the lights from the lavatory and by the lights of the perimeter fence outside. It was so dark in the dormitory that it was impossible for the officer at the door to distinguish between the officers from the inmates when the officers were near the day room. All he could see were human forms. The large number of beds in dormitory E2 further diminished the poor visibility at night. Although there were only 62 inmates in E2 on the night of the riot, there were 90 beds. This arrangement made it possible for an inmate to hide between sets of bunks in order to attack an officer walking down the aisle. The proximity to, of the beds to the door created an opportunity for inmates in these beds to attack the door if they wished to do so. Discussing these conditions, one correctional officer who worked the dormitories said that every time he reported for night duty, he wondered whether he would leave the penitentiary alive. But the most dangerous of the working conditions in E2 were the inmates themselves. Many of these men were considered dangerous enough to require assignment to cell block 5, a maximum security cell block, but renovation of that cell block forced their removal. Prison officials said that it is customary to isolate and disperse dangerous individuals throughout the medium security living units when maximum security units were available, but most of the inmates of cell block 5 were transferred to dormitory E2. In mid-January, several of these inmates smuggled yeast and raisins from the kitchen into the dormitory. They mixed these in plastic garbage bags and placed them in boxes to ferment an intoxicating home brew. At about 8.30 p.m. on Friday, February 1st, just after the early evening count, a group of inmates began drinking the brew. By 10.30, they were drunk and angry and talking loudly about taking over the place. The men finally agreed that two of them would position themselves in the two single beds nearest the door and attack it when the officer opened it for the closing of the day room. At about 1.30 a.m., four officers prepared to close the day room in dormitory E2. When the officers entered, the two inmates who were to attack the door were already in the two beds five feet from the door. 
When one of the officers was over halfway down the aisle, another was in the day room, and the last was four bunks from the door, an inmate leaped from the bed and hit the still open door. His partner followed and attempted to knock the door wide open. They were quickly joined by other inmates. The officers were jumped at the same time. The guards were quickly overpowered, stripped, bound, and blindfolded. An inmate dressed in an officer's uniform led other inmates down the stairs between E2 and E1 and through the unlocked gate at the bottom of the stairs. They then ran out of the vestibule through the open door and unused riot control grill. They ran along the corridor and then up the stairs to dormitory F2. There the inmates attacked four other officers who were outside dormitory A2. One of the officers resisted, but the inmates stabbed, beat, and finally subdued him. In the confusion of the attack, one of the guards was able to escape and get into dormitory F2, where he was protected by sympathetic inmates. Some inmates then took the keys from the guards and unlocked the doors to other dormitories to release other inmates. At least 120 inmates were free in the main corridor in the south wing almost immediately, and within minutes, more than 500 had free access to the corridor for dorms A, B, and F. The inmates in E1, a semi-protective custody dorm, barricaded themselves safely in their unit. Other inmates stripped, bound, and blindfolded a guard and then dragged him to the main corridor by a belt looped around his neck. The crowd of inmates, now roaming the corridor, began to push and kick him northward down the hall towards the control center. At approximately 1.57, the officer manning the control center heard an inmate's voice on the two-way radio saying the shift captain had been taken hostage. The voice demanded a meeting with the governor, a representative of the news media, and a former warden. At this, the officer in the control center called the deputy warden and informed him that a riot was developing. From inside the control center, two officers could, could see a group of 75 to 100 inmates gather in front of the glass window in the main corridor. One of the inmates in the front of the crowd demanded that Lucero, the guard, open the grills adjacent to the control center, allowing the inmates access to the front offices of the institution. The officer refused. Then the inmates began to beat the naked hostage with steel rods and pipes, telling the control center officer that he could expect the same treatment if he did not cooperate. The inmates then began to beat on the control center windows with pipes and a fire extinguisher. The officer watched the first throw from the fire extinguisher bounce off the glass. This happened a second time. Yet, on the third throw, however, the window began cracking. Only seconds later, inmates were in the control center of the penitentiary. Their break in the control center was accomplished in three to five minutes. Believing the windows would not break, the officers stood and watched the assault. When bits of glass began falling from the panes, the officers realized that the control center was vulnerable. Fearing imminent capture, the two fled. In their haste to escape, the officers did not secure any keys on the keyboard or attempt to use the tear gas stored in the control center. The two officers double-backed to the administration building and observed the progress of the rioters. 
they saw inmates in the corridor near the visitor's area. The officers then ran back to the entrance and reached the tower at 2.05 a.m. They were the first correction officers to escape the riot. In 22 minutes, the inmates had gained control of the institution. Officers began to seek refuge. Two hid in the basement crawl space near the gas chamber. The infirmary technician locked himself in the upstairs hospital with seven inmate patients. Three other officers locked themselves in an area of the basement where bedding was stored. Now we have the release of the most dangerous convicts. Having broken into the control center and electronically unlocked the corridor grill of the north wing, the inmates rushed into the main corridor near cell block 3. Some inmates fumbled through a bunch of keys which had been brought from the control center. After some time, the inmates eventually found the right key to unlock the outer unit grill. The officers who had locked themselves in the basement ignored further demands to open the inner unit grill, but eventually the inmates found the right key and captured those three officers who were then stripped and beaten. The inmates then began to release the violent and dangerous residents of cell block 3. Most of them were out of their cells by 3 a.m. Next, the inmates broke into the hospital pharmacy. A variety of drugs, mostly barbiturates, antidepressants, antipsychotics, and sedatives were available to all comers in massive doses. The large quantity of drugs on hand was due to the state's purchasing policy of acquiring bulk drugs. Also, paint, paint thinner, and glue located in the paint shop and shoe repair shop were also accessible to the rioting inmates in large quantities. The availability of large doses of SNF contributed to the riot as the substance are known to induce violent behavior. Inmates, with the help of keys from the control center, obtained a heavy-duty alkaline cutting torch stored in the plumbing shop in the basement under the kitchen. They used this torch to cut through the manually operated corridor grill, separating the education wing and dorm D1 from the rest of the institution. The inmates then used the torches to break into cell block 5, which was under renovation. There they grabbed two more torches at the construction company had left behind. With these three blow torches, the inmates then went to cell block 4. Inside was the protective unit that housed the jailhouse informants and mentally ill prisoners. These were the most vulnerable inmates and the objects of the most wrath. Many of the inmates in the Punishment and Maximum Security Ward, Cell Block 3, were in there because of those in Unit 4. Thus, with blowtorches and rage, the inmates sought entry into Cell Block 4. Here's where Part 1 comes to an end. Part 2 will pick up with the entry into Cell Block 4 and the unimaginable horrors that follows. Thanks. I'll chat with you again next week.